0: Hey out there rock and rollers, welcome to the 121st edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, brought to you by me, your host, MacBee the Wolf, and I will be joined here very shortly by my co-host Action Jackson, who's coming from the East Coast of the U.S., and we appreciate everybody who tuned in last week to our special episode on David Bowie's Let's Dance, which is turning 40 here very soon, an iconic artist, and Although he may not have loved the direction that he went in on that one, with the help of Nile Rodgers, he had his biggest-selling, most-successful album of all time. It was the first time we had come to find David Bowie as young people watching MTV, and so we thought it would be a great show to do, and I hope you were able to check that one out. This week, we're doing another amazing UK band that has found success all around the world, but maybe not quite the success that they should have in the United States of America. Although they have a big following and ardent fans here, they just never really got the respect that I think they deserve for their writing, their musicianship, and the fact that they're relentless tourers who put on one hell of an amazing show every time they go out. And that's Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden came out as part of the new wave of British heavy metal in the late 70s into the early 80s. It had a string of hits in the UK, but they never really had much radio success in the U.S. They never got on MTV here. Rock and pop radio never played them. And after Number of the Beast in 1982, they really caught the attention of some Christian groups who thought, oh, they're satanic, down with Iron Maiden, we can't have them in our town. So they got a lot of negative press for that, but the metal fans knew, wow, these folks really, really have the goods. So when 1983 comes around, they put out Peace of Mind, and that's not P-E-A-C-E, folks, that's P-I-E-C-E. And you can tell that that's what they mean by the cover, which has Eddie, their beloved mascot, Uh, In a padded room, in a straight jacket, chained down, uh, and he's obviously been lobotomized. But it was after this one that that kind of lobotomy screw was part of his look going forward after that. And it was an important album for the band because they finally solidified their lineup. They had a lineup change for every album, including this one. Clive Burr, who had been their drummer since the beginning, at least the beginning of the recording career, was out. And Nico McBrain, who is quite the character and an important member of Iron Maiden, an important member of their legacy here, he joined the band, really gave a big shot in the arm, changed the dynamics of their sound, and gave them the capabilities of becoming not just the big-time heavy metal band, but the prog metal band that they They really are today and of course he hasn't left since and then once that lineup was solidified they had that through the rest of the decade. They broke up a little bit in the 90s but then they were all back together by 2000 for Brave New World along with Yannick Gers who had taken over for Adrian Smith in 1990. So we decided as this one is turning 40 in May this year we would go track by track and we've done a bunch of other Iron Maiden shows we'll talk about that a little bit later here but you can go check us out wherever you get your podcast, download, and subscribe, and go back and check out those previous Iron Maiden episodes, because we've done a bunch of them here, because we love Iron Maiden, and we can't wait to see them this summer in Europe. We'll talk more about that later. Now, a little bit of business here. We always mention how we're proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, which is a network of about 100 shows. Music related, all genres. There's something in there for everybody. And recently, Pantheon sponsored the Rockin' Pod Expo down in Nashville, which is a place for musicians, artists, vendors, podcasters, all to kind of get together and enjoy the music that they love. There are some great musicians there, like Eric Martin of Mr. Big, like Eddie Ojeda, of Twisted Sister. He had great folks there like Bibi Buell, Don Jameson, Ricky Rockman. A A lot of folks were there. And it was great for me to be able to drive down there and just get to know some of the other Pantheon podcasters you know, great to see Danny and Elon of What's Hot in the Strip Clubs and Brad of uh, I'm in Love with That Song. Got to see my buddy Jay from the Hook Rocks. He actually interviewed me. I think I'm on one of his shows that's out now from the Rocket Pod. Got to see Sonny Pooney down there, our buddy. And and not to mention Christian and Peter from Pantheon, the guys at Covers and Fire. Got to meet Jason at All Things Blues and Southern Rock. So it was a cool event. It's just, it's great after being in Europe for four years to be able to get back to the States and get to see and meet some of these people face to face face so check out pantheonpodcast.com or at pantheon pods on Twitter and of course we have to mention our incredible sponsors rarevinyl.com guys rare vinyl has been selling records around the world for 40 years. They have a five star rating from Trust Radius based in the UK. They have over a quarter of a million items in stock. And they have an amazing team that will ship stuff to you all over the world. So if you're looking to sell or offload your collection, go to rarevinyl.com. But if you're looking for something special, and maybe it's a maiden first print, or maybe it's a CD, or maybe it's a poster, a display poster from a record store from back in the day, they have all sorts of amazing stuff. Go to rarevinyl.com or EIL.com. Use code PODCAST, P o d c a s t, and you can save 10% off your orders. So go buy a few things. Easter's coming up. You want to get something special for that certain somebody? Go to rarevinyl.com. Use code PODCAST. Save 10%. It should at least get rid of all or a chunk of your shipping costs. And believe me, they take incredible care to get it to you wherever you are in the world, Europe, U.K., U.S., Canada. Australia, South Africa, wherever you are, rarevinyl.com has amazing stuff for the collector, and I know there's a lot of you out there. Now back to Iron Maiden's peace of mind. Again, we didn't come to Iron Maiden until we were older. We were in college. We didn't get them in high school or in grade school, and this one came out when we were about 10 years old. Wasn't on MTV, wasn't on rock radio, and our parents never would have let us bring something like Eddie lobotomized into our house. So it was something that was just off of our radar, until finally our buddy Rob, at college, introduced us to Iron Maiden. Like, wow, these guys are really good. We kind of came into the Seventh Son era, like, oh, it's an amazing guitar player. They're like heavy metal poets. There's a little prog there. It gives it a little kind of symphonic thing. It really shows you the majesty of metal. So we worked our way back here, and of course, Peace of Mind has The Trooper on it, which to me is just the greatest Iron Maiden song ever. At least the greatest short song. We can debate over that. Flight of Icarus was big. Die with your boots on. Revelations was a great live track for them. And some of these were encapsulated on Live After Death, which was episode, what, 14 for us? Another very successful one for us on Iron Maiden. So we'll probably get to all of them eventually. But this is our sixth, I do believe, Iron Maiden record review. We're going track by track on peace of mind as it turns 40, right here on The Wolf. I admit that I put off some of my research for peace of mind here. I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll do it. I, I just got to get to it. That's all. And I'm just like, didn't get to it, didn't get to it. So yesterday <laughs> I did a lot of it. And I'm like... This is Iron Maiden really stepping forward a little bit here. And it's also, it's the dawn of the classic lineup, the lineup that is still together or back together. Plus Yannick Gers, of course, is is the third guitar player now. But from this album, 1983, through 1990, we'll call it, until they got to No Prayer for the Dying, this was the stable lineup. And it's where they did, I think, their best and most creative work from 83, from this, through Seventh
1: Son, This was the
0: dawn of the classic maiden era.
2: Well, here we have what is this, the fourth studio record? And yes. again, we have another lineup change. Right. And here's where we get to the airing of the grievances for this episode. All right. So, whenever they have discussions about who the best rock drummer is, it's always John Bonham from Led Zeppelin, yep. Neil Peart from Rush. Yep. You throw in Ian Pace from Deep Purple. No one ever mentions Nico, and I know. he is. Amazing. He is a no no offense to Clive Burr. Clive was great on the first three, but right. they step it up in a huge way on this record, and especially on this first track.
0: It's amazing. And of course, when we were in college, when I had the Laser Disc player, the, the guy I lived with after you, Mike, brought home one day Iron Maiden 12 Wasted Years on mm-hmm. Laserdisc. He's like, There you go, buddy. I'm like, I don't know if I want this or not. But It's a cool documentary that talks with all the people who've kind of been in their orbit over time, you know, and then it cuts to some videos and some live performances and stuff like that. So it was a great way to kind of get to know the maiden story. And obviously... We, and we watched it a lot. And we obviously yeah. knew yeah, <laughs> yeah, we watched it son and we obviously knew some of these songs from Live After Death, which mm-hmm. we did we did an episode on that way back when. It was one of our first like twelve or fifteen or so episodes, and it's been very popular. So I was thinking about that. This is our fourth maiden album review. Point of fact here, and we do try to call ourselves out when we make mistakes on The Ugly American Werewolf in London, it's actually our sixth Iron Maiden record review. Number 14 episode was about Live After Death. The 38th show was Somewhere in Time, and the 39th show was Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. In the lead-up to Senjutsu, and then show number 65 last year, was the number of the beast as it was turning 40 uh, and then number 66 not 666 was fear of the dark turning 30 so that's five album reviews already this peace of mind at 40 is the sixth plus i had a nice review of bruce dickinson's live speaking tour which was part of episode number 48 so just some clarity there <coughs> Because we okay. did Live After Death early. We did both Somewhere in Time and Seventh Son in the lead up to Sinjitsu. And then, of course, you and I both saw Bruce on his speaking tour. So we kind of had, I think, like half shows on seeing on Bruce uh, mm-hmm. over time. One was was with, I think, number 48 when we also did the Who's Next ahead of its 50th anniversary. So I guess this is like kind of our sixth show, but it's our fourth review.
2: But We've done Fear of the Dark and Number of the Beast, too.
0: Have we done Number of the Beast?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm we did we did
0: okay all right well i didn't remember that so
2: <laughs> they're all starting to run together now. now i gotta
0: go find that one but i mean think about it the classic lineup that we're talking about here with bruce on vocals obviously steve harris on bass dave and adrian on guitar and then Nico, they had a run here, 83 to, you know, 89 or whatever. They did they did this one, Peace of Mind, then Power Slave, then the classic live album, Live After Death, then Somewhere in Time, then Seventh Son. The only one we haven't reviewed out of those after this is Power Slave, which, of course, is represented very well on Live After Death. That's because this really was the classic. I mean, Dennis Stratton was lead guitar on the first album. Paul Deano was on vocals. Clive Burr was on the drums. Dave, Murray, and Steve have always been in the recording Mm -hmm. versions of Iron Maiden. They've never not been in the band. Of course, Steve is the man. But then after the first one, Stratton leaves and they get Adrian in for Killers. And they pick up Martin Birch to produce them at that point. And he produced this album. He produced eight in a row, starting with Killers. Then on the third album, they get rid of Paul Diano, bring in Bruce Dickinson. Huge free agent pickup. It's like, you know, it's like getting Wilt Chamberlain or something like that. (laughs) Best free agent pickup in the history of the world. And then on this one, Clive is out and Nico is in. Of course, Nico came from Trust, which is a French band. But we know Trust because they appeared on the Heavy Metal soundtrack
2: Mm -hmm. back
0: in the day, which was our, was that our fourth episode? Yeah, something like that. Very, very early. Yeah, it was our fourth episode. I think it was. It was way out, way early. It was very impressionable on us. So, I don't know, early. How did you, of course, this is what we do. We want to know, how did you come to this? album how did you know peace of mind back in the day
2: well i think i was like everybody else at that time it was the trooper i mean this is the that's the track that gets played a lot and then you kind of get into the the flight of icarus but it was definitely the trooper it's the one that even though i think this record kind of gets passed over in the the pantheon of maiden records that's the one that they still play all the time on rock radio it's instantly recognizable as an Iron Maiden song. So that would be my first introduction to this record.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I'll, I'll say this later. I think that The Trooper is like the epitome of Iron Maiden. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like if you say, look, you got to tell somebody about Iron Maiden, but you've got one song to do it. What song are you going to choose? This is the one. And yeah. Although, you know, now you would say they're more of a prog metal band, right? I mean, they don't make songs under six or seven minutes anymore, and sometimes they're 12 or 13 (laughs) minutes, something like that. And that's absolutely one of their calling cards, is to have these long, drawn-out songs. Revelations is seven minutes, and they do it longer, live. You know, To Tame a Land is over seven minutes. But if you're going to boil it down, say... Who is Iron Maiden? Give me one song to tell the story. It's the Trooper. And it actually got radio play in America, which they never do. I I Mm -hmm. never heard Iron Maiden on the radio until much later in life. I never heard him on rock radio in the 80s. And I never saw him on MTV. Uh,
2: No. Well, that's probably because... Well, they made videos. They just just never showed them. Right. And uh, I could see how, if you were a fan of this record, you would hate the later stuff cuz this this is fairly tight fairly compact mm-hmm. very heavy and no synthesizers no anything like that so in the, this record for me it, it kind of gets it gets lost a little bit because it's sandwiched in between number of the beast which was huge and then power slave into live after death so this is the one that's kind of it kind of gets forgotten about. I think a little bit.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're a little bit right on that. Plus, it's Nico's first one, and although he shines brightly, uh, especially mm-hmm. in a couple spots that we'll point out here, it, it always takes a little bit for the band to like kind of figure out, okay, how are we going to do all this together, you know? But right. but what Nico can do is pretty amazing, though. And and Bruce in that Twelve Wasted of Years like, can he do this? Can he do this, this, and this? Yes, he can too. <laughs> so, they're excited to have him in. Of course, it's time for me to tell the obligatory story about how was I was at the Ryder Cup mm-hmm. and I met Nico on the course <laughs> because I don't know. I'm like sitting on the sixth hole or something like that, and of course, the wives and like captains can walk the course with the guys. It's kind of that that rare tournament where they can do that. And I'm sitting there with a bunch of golf people, right, sitting on the sixth green or whatever. And all of a sudden you hear this, ole, 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 ole. And everybody turns around. And there's a guy wearing like the European Ryder Cup outfit for the day with the hat and everything, (laughs) but with this long blonde hair. And everyone's like, who the hell is that guy? You know, they have no idea who Nico McBrain is. That's because six-time major winner, Sir Nick Faldo, I think he's a sir, had chosen Nico as an honorary captain, and so when Nico was about thirty yards away, I go. I leaned over the rope, and I go, Nico, up the irons, and and every and he looks at me, and then he comes over, he shakes my hand. Hey, how you doing? I'm like, Hey, man, keep touring, we'll keep going to see you. And then all the golf people around me were like, Okay, who was that, and who are you? <laughs> And the thing is, it was in, like, Sports Illustrated. It wasn't like I read that in Classic Rock or Kerrang! or something like that. It was in Sports Illustrated that Nick Faldo had uh, had made him an honorary captain. And it's like, how did you know that? I'm like, well, I am a huge Iron Maiden fan. But usually those two crowds don't don't overlap a lot.
2: No, but it, but it's interesting how I think Nico brought more than just the drumming to the band. Because, I mean, he's very entertaining. He's a very colorful person where going back to that 12 wasted years when you when they had the parts with Steve Harris he is very reserved right? very oh yes how oh, fancy a pint you know mm-hmm. really, like and then they've got oh boys and girls boys and girls let's talk about <laughs> this you know blah 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 so yeah he he definitely brings an air of lightheartedness and i think he he definitely keeps the band going on these long tours i mean they were talking about how it, he wasn't in the band, but he was kind of hanging around the band for a while before he before right. he joined the band, so he was kind of a a friend natural fit to come in there and he can really
0: just play the hell out of the drums, yeah, he's quite the character he's got a lot of energy to him. that's what you want in a drummer, I think you know and and you're right, Steve can be fairly serious and straightforward, and when the gig is on, it's work time, you know he right. is on it. Bruce obviously takes himself very seriously. And, and Dave and Adrian are fairly reserved for flashy guitar players, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah he, yeah, he brought something I think the band needed. I think Rod's got a great personality, Rod Smallwood, the, the man besides Steve Harris, who was responsible for all of their success. But I, I think they needed Nico. I think he gave him a shot in the arm in more ways than one.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and definitely, yeah, you need somebody to to do press or whatever. He's your guy. Put them out there and just wind them up and let them go. Let them go,
0: yeah. So, so no. Number of the Beast was uh, a big one for them. It was obviously Bruce's first album with the band, which changes their sound. It changes their look, uh, and so now they're they're going forward in a big way. And we talked about on the previous on the on the Live After Death episode how they try to kill Bruce basically on the Power Slave tour on the World Slavery <laughs> tour because they did like 180 or 190 <laughs> dates or something crazy like that. Well. <laughs> For Number of the Beast or, or for, for this for this tour, you know, they did like 130 some odd dates from May through December all over the world. So it's not like the, we'll just, you know, we'll take it easy or something. But they got out there and they mm-hmm. worked their asses off. And it's why they have this incredible fan base and standing in the world of rock today because they would go play everywhere and they just, they hit the road and they just wouldn't come off of it.
2: Right. And that's why they are still playing today. I mean, they, they were the... If you want to know how to be successful, you need to just follow the Iron Maiden map. And that's just tour, tour, tour. Keep giving the fans what they want. Because you're right, they were never on MTV. They were never on the radio. The reason America, that they're successful is because they toured relentlessly.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I was looking at the tour and it's like, you know, they came to places that we could have gone to see them. Like they played Madison Square Garden. They played Louisville. They played Jacksonville. Places that we have lived mm-hmm. or do live. They played all these places. So now, when we were nine or ten, we weren't going to get to go see Iron Maiden. No, because the if, you know if our mothers had seen the artwork,
2: <laughs>
0: that would not have made it in the door. Wouldn't have made it in. But see, Derek Riggs, who is another piece of the puzzle here, he was doing all of their artwork back then. Mm-hmm. So he did the uh, the Trooper. Cover with Eddie lobotomized in a straight jacket in a padded room for peace of mind. But then he also did the singles too. And the Trooper single cover mm-hmm. is iconic. It, it's more iconic than most of the album covers, I would say.
2: Yeah. And especially now that he's on the uh, he's on the beer where you see him all the time. That right. is a great. Yeah. I think that might be better than I wouldn't say better than the cover of this one, because it's pretty it's pretty iconic with the padded room and the chains and the straitjacket. But yeah, definitely another piece of artwork to see.
0: Yeah. And it was my first T-shirt. And honestly, I have more Iron Maiden T-shirts than I have any other band's T-shirts, partly because when you join the fan club, which you need to do to get tickets, they send you a new T-shirt every year. Hmm. And, but the first one I ever bought, it was the trooper, you know, and it, it because I'm like, this is the iconic image and it's not just an album cover, right? Uh, right. It, album cover is easy to get. So, uh, so I remember getting the, the trooper and I think, well, I still have it somewhere. It's on a box on the Atlantic right now, I think, but, or it's in a box in storage, like the Ark of the Covenant, <laughs> uh, you know, somewhere like that. But this one, I mean, it was surprising. I mean, it did go platinum in the U S and it actually got up to number 14. I went to number three in the UK and it went top 10 all around Europe, you know, number nine in, in the Netherlands, top 10 in Canada went double platinum in Canada. So, you know, to people like our friend Chris at, uh, at rock these tweets, Hey, well done for getting it in the charts and, and, and getting out there and buying it. But, I mean, it, it sold very well for them, sold millions around the world, and the singles did all right as well. So even though, especially in America, you're not hearing them on the radio, you're not seeing them on MTV, unlike what we did last week with David Bowie, which was all over MTV. It's basically mm-hmm. all they showed uh, on MTV. This is still doing almost as well uh, without any of that help. So you know it, there must be something to it.
2: Right, and I think it's a, it's a case where in the United States... We just kind of missed the boat again. They weren't really promoted. I know they I know they tried with this one. This was the, kind of going to be their breakthrough record. But up until this point, it. I don't think really anybody had heard of them mainstream. Mainstream, and, yeah. Yeah, and you're right. You know, To be a kid, 14, 15 years old, and to have that album in your room would be a, as soon as they found that, what is this thing? Well, right. no, it's cool. You don't understand. No, it's horrendous. Get this out of my house.
0: Right, and because Number of the Beast had the devil on there, oh, there's a song, Mm -hmm. 666, Number of the Beast, that got them all sorts of negative press in America, especially in the South and the heartland. Oh, they're satanic. like, no, you fools, they're not satanic. We'll get into a little bit more of that later. I'll tell you another thing that emerged, though, is Bruce Dickinson is a writer because he did not write any songs on Number of the Beast, his first album with them. Harris obviously writes the majority of the songs or collaborates on the majority, it's no different here. He writes or co-writes six of the nine songs on this record, but Adrian Smith does co-write three songs on here, all of them with Bruce or Steve. And to see the development of Adrian and Bruce together, because Adrian wrote a couple songs with Steve on the previous record, including... Was it the prisoner? He did Twenty Two Acacia Avenue. He even wrote, I think, Gangland with Clive Burr got a got a co-write on that. But then eventually, like on the next record, like Two Minutes to Midnight, mm-hmm. they wrote that together, you know. So and and they did some writing together on on uh, uh, on Seventh Sun. So it's like em- these two emerging together as writers because Steve comes with a lot of ideas. He comes with a lot of lyrics. He comes with mm-hmm. a lot of melodies and stuff like that. So to see Dickinson and Adrian write, rising up as not only writers but a writing team is an interesting development
1: here
2: and i think it's it's cool that harris like we were talking about before steve harris is iron maiden it's his band he's been there since day one he you know he is the creative director musical director art director, everything to the fact that he can realize hey these guys can write some pretty good songs and not just put all of his stuff on Mm -hmm. the record is pretty cool because I think when that happens, it's all going to sound the same. And here, when you have different people writing either totally, either different combinations or just people that uh, totally different, like Harris is out of it, it makes for a uh, kind of a broader spectrum of stuff that you could pick from.
0: Yes, absolutely. And when you look at the inspiration behind these songs, mm-hmm. all the books and the authors and the movies that they take these from this is not american heavy metal where it's just about chicks and drugs or cars and stuff like that Uh we we did an album that's also celebrating its 40th anniversary earlier this year metal health by quiet Mm -hmm. riot right not written not not (laughs) taken from the same inspiration as these guys and that's i think part of why we've always liked english bands Mm. is because not only do they seem to be very good at their instruments, but they're just better educated. The, the, the classical education just seems, even though obviously Steve has, Harris is very working class kind of a guy, but he still reads these heavy books, right. and, you know, and it gets into the stories, and it's just a little bit more interesting. Now, some of it is a little over the top, and we'll, we'll get into some of that. There's a reason some people don't really like heavy metal or, or proggy heavy metal. And, and we'll get into kind of some of that, but I just think what they base their stuff on is a little more highbrow than they ever get credit for.
2: Right. Yeah. I think they are. There's a lot more going on here than you're right. Than they get credit for it just shows what you're interested in and how you can translate that, you know, a book that I read a million years ago into a song, how it makes you feel where you draw inspiration from. It's not just yes. And she was so hot and it's Friday night.
0: Yeah. And they weren't way into drugs and stuff like that. I mean, I I think they used to like to have a few drinks and stuff like that, but they, they never really got crazy on that kind of stuff. And so when you're on the road, this is before you had satellite in the van and the bus and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So you, you bring books with you to, to pass the time you have to. Right. You know, and, and, and that's what they do.
1: This is Neil from Daflat Pod. And you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf
0: in London, a rock podcast. All right, well, let's get into this because ugh, suddenly we have less time than I thought. We would.
2: <laughs>
0: but as they typically do, they start off with a Harris Wright Uh, And this is Where Eagles Dare, kind of based on the movie. It was the 1968 film. Do Mm -hmm. you know who was in Where Eagles Dare?
2: Uh Mr. Clint Eastwood.
0: Yes. Anyone else? Mm -hmm. All right, just tell me. All right, it's Richard Burton. And the reason I know that is from Scrooged. Remember when Bill Murray goes down to like the homeless shelter and they're calling him Dick because they think he's Richard Burton? (laughs) You know, it's like, please, Dick, please, Dick, tell us a thing. And, And then the dude's like, Where Eagles Dare? I never saw Where Eagles Dare, but because I saw Scrooge, I know Richard Burton was in Where Eagles Dare.
2: Was that where he goes into the Richard Burton impression?
1: (laughs) That's right. Why do you keep calling me Dick? I'm sorry, Mr. Burton. Maybe we don't know you well enough to call you Dick. But after Exodus II and Night of the Iguana, we thought we had something special. So could you please just do a couple of lines from Hamlet, please? Hey, for the sandpiper. Leave me alone. Do you see for me? Please, sir. De-
0: please do it. Please,
1: please
0: do it for Eva. Yeah. Fine. yeah fine. Hey, fine. Hey, Mark, I am all kind of nobody coming out me for me. All those who get over, all that is in here. You know, the rain really my four night fall of chia. I swear,
1: by the I foreswear. Oh. Not far. Now beat it before I
0: beat you, uh, Eagles. Were Eagles there?
2: Yeah. I do remember that part. Yes. Um, I I think I've seen bits and pieces of this. I couldn't tell you anything about it, other than I know it's a World War II movie. I think they're trying to rescue soldiers in the Alps. And that's about, about it. Right. That's yeah. about it. But I know that there there are a couple of good uh, YouTube videos of Nico just playing the intro to that. You mm. know, he's just sitting in a kit, and I remember showing my son this when he was uh, thinking about starting to play drums and all he would say to me was, whoa, (laughs) that that intro is just, it's super iconic. It's super, it's very unique, not easy to play and just kind of sets the tone for what we're doing now.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a showcase. There's a new kid in town. Correct. We got this great new toy. Watch him go. (laughs) (laughs) It is impressive, and, and, and but to me, that's the song. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it's a runner, of course, but overall, it, as far as the other versus the other songs of the album, it doesn't stand out that much to me. I mean, I think Steve liked to open the set with it and, and, you know, come out, look at what Nico can do. Yeah. It's like he's got six limbs instead of four. But during the bridge or the, you know, parts of this, what you, I guess you would call the solo, you could hear gunfire in there. Uh-huh. So it's obviously, it's a war thing, but there's no crazy guitar solos. It, it's really just a, and it's nothing over the top from Bruce with howling vocals or holding notes in an insane way. And there's a big note from Bruce at the end that he holds. And, you know, they, they take it up, they take it down. They bring it back well at the end. It, it's not my fame. It, it could have been, take out the Nico. It could have been from earlier in their catalog, just because the riff is not amazing. Mm. The solos aren't amazing. Bruce isn't over the top. It's not that I don't like it, but to me, it's just, it's a showcase for Nico and, and that's kind of it to me.
2: Yeah, and and the other thing is that there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff on this record, so I could see where you would say this kind of gets pushed off. If it wasn't for Nico playing on this, yeah, you're right. Would would this be one you could kind of gloss over? Uh, it is a nice way to start, though. Like it's really, it's telling you we're going full speed right off the bat.
0: I'll give you that. Yeah, and if you don't want to start with the Trooper then this is a fine way to start. I mean, it comes out, it hits your face. It is kind of a typical maiden runner. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah, it it sets the tone, but it's, it's more setting the tone. Look at what we got on drums now versus look at how amazing our, our riffs or our, our trading licks are on this one. Mm -hmm. But the second song revelations, this is, this is some classic maiden here. And this is one Bruce wrote on his own. I think it's, is it his only solo right on the on the record? I believe that yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. So he must have felt pretty confident, you know, having never written a song for Maiden before, and then coming out like, you know, let's do this one. And it's got the big power chords to start. It's got that slow build, and then dun 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 which mm-hmm. on Live After Death is kind of amazing. <laughs> and then you know, because in between they're going ah, between there. And then and then the gallop. Then yep. comes the gallop and we are off and running on this one.
2: Yeah, and this is a nice. This is a nice change of pace. They slow it down. Yes, um, it's it's not it's it's no less heavy, but it's a nice slow it down a little bit, and then it's it's more Dickinson is singing. It's more reserved, but it's still powerful the way that he's delivering the vocals. Absolutely. And there's a lo- the, the other thing is there's a lot of um, tempo changes in this one too, so it sounds like a couple of different songs yeah. put together.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean they, they, once they get the gal going, and then uh, they go back down to slow for a little bit there. Yeah, and there's, uh, a, there's an acoustic, like, bridge that they've got. And then Adrian and Dave trade some, some pretty decent solos here in this one. This is great Iron Maiden. I mean, this is just good stuff. And the fact that Bruce can come in after Steve, I mean, look, if it's a tale of two songs, this is much better than Where Eagles Dare in my book. And so for Bruce to be able to step up and do that, while Steve is obviously the leader of the band and the head songwriter, I'm like, all right, good on you, Bruce. Now we're, you know, we're broadening our scope here. It fits in perfectly with everything else, but it's not just the same voice voice being writer, putting this together.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting to me how this comes together because this is the only one that he writes by himself. He and Smith kind of from this point on become a fairly prolific writing partnership. Right. I guess, I guess it was kind of easier. Like, I don't know whether Smith came up with the the riffs and then Dickinson with the lyrics or whatever, but they work well together. It's easy. To, it's, it's interesting to see a solo write from Dickinson on this one.
0: And you know, the, the, uh, some of the lyrics, you know, the light of the blind, you'll see the venom tears my spine, the eyes of the Nile are opening, you'll see, and then that's, you, you know, it's it's coming there, but it's not just, uh, yeah, it's not just going to the malt shop with your baby, you know, this is heavy, fantastic, yeah, uh, kind of, and biblical, obviously, with revelations kind of writing and and i don't know i i like it you know and i can see that being like a young kid you know for the one who'll be king the watcher in the ring it is you that's probably going to appeal to a young man looking for some power
2: Mm -hmm. and yeah just kind of trying to figure out where they're coming from and where you know what are you really trying to tell me in this song it is a little more nuanced than the stuff we would get in the united
0: states that's right that's right then slick Black Cadillac, Quiet Riot. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. Yeah. So that's a, that's a classic. That's Great Maiden. And if I'm not mistaken, they played that last year. They played that recently on the Legacy of the Beast tour, which is pretty darn cool, if you ask me. Now, it, it is it is worth mentioning that you and I are going to see Iron Maiden this summer. It's no longer Legacy of the Beast tour, right? It's mm-hmm. Days of Future pa- or it's the Future Past tour, right? Mm-hmm. And, and obviously they haven't done it. I think they start in late May, so we don't know what their set list is. But from the, the visuals and the kind of the poster that they worked up there, it's like half Sanjitsu and half somewhere in time. Correct. So they're going to bring Correct. back some stuff from somewhere in time, which I'm really excited about.
2: Well, I mean, we've we've talked about that before. The only visual record of that somewhere in time tour is that Stranger in a Strange Land video. Video. That's right. Right. And nobody's ever because they did. They I guess they just didn't tape anything for that. So yeah, if that's what they're going to do, the set from somewhere in time. Uh, like the stage set. I can't wait to see that.
0: That would be amazing. Cause yeah. when they did made in England a little over, or it's about a decade ago, that was huge. It was their best tour, most successful tour in America in a long time where they kind of had the ice from seven sun mm-hmm. on there. Yeah, And I, I got to see them. I saw uh, Alice Cooper open for them with Oriante, uh mm-hmm. was their guitar player. And she is super foxy. Actually, I think she's striking. I don't know if she's foxy. She's just, she's, She's very amazing, interesting looking. I wouldn't say beautiful. I wouldn't say hot. I just say striking. But anyway, yeah, on this on the, on this tour that they just kind of wrapped up, which they did for several years, and it kind of got postponed before COVID. And I was supposed to see them in America, and then I couldn't because we moved to England, and then I was hoping to see them in England. But then it was COVID and blah, blah, blah. So mm-hmm. that's when it's finally, I'm like, okay, we got to go see them so nothing happens, uh, so we don't miss out. And you've still never seen them, correct? Correct. Correct. So.
2: Definitely we, looking forward to that. I can't, I, I can't wait.
0: We have to see them, but they did on the 139 shows, they did revelations every night. They did flight of Icarus every night and they did where Eagles dare for the part of the tour that was prior to them putting out some jitsu. And then when okay. jitsu came out, they, they subbed out some, you know, some of the older stuff for some of the newer stuff, which is cool, you know, so you could do writing on the wall and Stratego and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But, but so I mean to have a third of this album played, basically forty years right. later, you know that just that shows you how well it was received, how timeless it is in their catalog.
2: Right, and and it it shows you how Maiden fans want to hear the whole thing. No, people aren't there just to hear the hits. They want to hear the deep tracks. They want, I mean. Honestly, I think if, if they were to play for five hours straight, people would sit there and listen to it.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing, because some of their songs are so long. <sighs> it's not like you get 20 or 22 songs <laughs> in an Iron Maiden show. You get like 15. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think when I saw them at Ozfest, you got like 13 or something like that, because they weren't doing like a two-hour a two set. They were only doing like an hour and 20 minutes or something like that. Uh, but anyway, on to the third track, speaking of The Flight of Icarus, yeah, it's, it's the third track, but it was the first single, and the video was made while they were at Compass Point. So I guess they did some recording in Jersey, you know, between England and France there, mm. kind of in the winter. But then they said, Yeah, let's go down to the Bahamas. Yeah. hang it's, out the beach. It's yeah. wintertime. And it's like, you know, avoiding taxes in England is a sport for anybody who makes any <laughs> kind of money. And that's just what you do. If you, you record in England, yeah, you're going to have to pay money. But if you go to Compass Point, you know, you mm-hmm. don't. So... Here's their first video and their first single, which went to 11 in the UK. It didn't do nearly as well in the U.S. And it was backed with I Got the Fire by Montrose, famous for having uh, Sammy Hagar as their lead singer. Uh, mm. But but this is, this is obviously a, a classic, classic Maiden song.
2: Yeah, and I didn't realize that this was actually the – I thought the Trooper was the first single. This was the first one they released, and they actually released it in the United States – And I don't remember it, but that's fine. That in in 1983, I wasn't listening to this kind of music. That's right. But it was interesting how it's, you know, obviously the the myth of Icarus and the he's in the labyrinth and Mm -hmm. he gets out and it, you know, does not heed the warnings of his father. But it's really more of a song about rebellion too. And so I think that you know kind of struck a chord with young people with that. You know what? They, 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 in 1983, there was a comparison between that and Twisted Sisters. We're not going to take it, right. which this is a little more heavy duty than we're not going to take it. But the theme is the same. You know, I'm, I'm tired of this. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to, I'm going to make my own way. Of course, for Icarus, that didn't work out so well, but you know what right. kids keep, keep pushing
0: against authority. That's right. Well, did you, I mean, how did, did you get into mythology or did you study it in school or anything like that? Cause I took Latin for a long time and when you take latin you get i mean this is how they get you into latin right because it's not like you can go speak latin somewhere (laughs) so it's like all right well i today we're going to tell the story about the labyrinth and the minotaur Mm -hmm. and how icarus and his father escaped and he flew too close to the sun and all that kind of
2: yeah i've definitely studied some mythology in uh in school
0: yeah so i mean that's so when you hear flight makers like hey That's something I can relate to because, you know, I I can't always, you know, relate to Quest for Fire or to Tame a Land because I haven't read those books or, you know, seen those movies. But Flight of Icarus, like, yeah, yeah, there it is. So, yeah, they're in the studio. You see Bruce with his headphones on singing into the can. You you do see Martin Birch behind the console at some Mm -hmm. point. And then there's a guy with a blue face in a robe. Pretty sure that's Nico. I think so, yeah. New guy, you get to be the weirdo. You're tall. Yeah, Yeah. put put the robes on. And then he's out on a beach, like, holding a brain or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, sure, whatever. Uh, And and there's good trading. There's good back and forth uh, without being super fast between Adrian and and Dave. Should we address Adrian's T-shirt from the movie and from Mm -hmm. the video?
2: Go right ahead.
0: All right. Well, I don't know if he would wear it today. (laughs) But, you know, in the studio, there he is. And he's got a T-shirt on. And it's got, you know, two crossed flags One is the Union flag, Mm -hmm. not the Union Jack. It has to be on the back of a ship to be the Union Jack. If it's just on a pole or you're holding on land, it's the Union flag. And I learned that from our buddy Neil at Deflet Pod. He said that on one of his episodes. I'm like, huh, there's a little knowledge he just dropped on me. Okay. Because we always just call it the Union Jack around these parts. Yeah. But it, it was something Bruce would wave around during concerts and stuff like that. But it was crossed with the Confederate flag. And I'm sure the British and the Confederates were in cahoots against the United States of America way back in the day. Mm. And I'm sure a fan gave him that. Maybe someone from the South. But I, I got a feeling that today, well, it's not like they're on MTV anyway. But you wouldn't get on MTV wearing that T-shirt. No. And uh, and you probably shouldn't wear that around American Day. But he, I'm sure he does it. And I'm sure. He probably didn't realize at the time, would we have even realized at the time, how offensive that would be to people?
2: I don't know. No, absolutely not. And and so hopefully we've come a little bit farther down the road of, yeah, realizing that while you're not doing it to offend anyone, you might do it anyway. So let's just not
0: do it at all. And what I found interesting in doing research for this was, considering this was a big single and it was on live after death, they didn't play this for 32 years. Huh. From like 86 or 87, 86 I think it was, they didn't play this until like 2018 or 2019 and and then they broke it back out. And so that's probably why on Legacy of the Beast people were excited to see it Mm -hmm. again because it had been so long. So I don't know why that was. They just had other stuff they wanted to play. Yeah, Um, it's
2: interesting how they how they uh, they go about putting together the set list. You know, why would you pick this out after all those years? You know, had you been wait, whoever brought this up, hey, I want to play this again. Yeah, we have. Well, you know what? Let's go ahead and do it.
0: Well, and All right, so I understand that they don't play it during the 90s because this is a Bruce Adrian-written song. So when they're not in the band in the 90s, okay, sure, yeah, you don't play it then. But then once they came back in 2000, you tell me from 2000 to 2018, all the tours you did, it never came up? Maybe we should do Flight of Incrits? <laughs> well, maybe not. I don't know. But I'm glad they put it back in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's move on to the fourth one, Die With Your Boots On. This is the only Smith, Dickinson, and Harris pen track. Mm. Obviously die with your boots on is a great is a great line and a great notion like you die standing up you you die fighting for what you believe in but it's Correct. really about how you know leaders and politicians just they throw us as grist for the mill and they can they can avoid wars but what they do is they kind of predict there'll be a war and then they make it come true kind of thing right hmm. you know like they prophesize oh there could be a war and then they create a war you know to benefit themselves kind of thing so i feel like it's a it's a take on our world leaders being self-serving sacks which you know again <laughs> is there anything different today
2: not no not really and and a theme they'll revisit on 2 minutes to midnight it's kind of the same thing about how it's just a it's just a machine that they feed the working class people into but i do like that i do like that theme of you know if you're going to die die with your boots on just you know what this is going to happen let's go let's just go head on into this
0: And, yeah, and if you're gonna cry okay, get out of the way you right, know, exactly we, we don't need you you're gonna yeah. die anyway so
2: <laughs>
0: I figure yeah if you're gonna die all right stand up stand you know maybe you get somebody, maybe you some you maybe take one of them with you right stand right. up and, and fight kind of thing right I, I do I, I do think it's repetitive Especially, I mean, there's there's only two verses, and then there's a heck of a lot of the same chorus over and over and over again. You know,
2: right? But di- but did you build this one for a live show where you can have the audience screaming it back at you? It's it's easy. You know what's coming. Let's let's go call and response. And even even there, you have that kind of that rare chorus from I guess the other guys in the band. I don't know who's singing that, but you know, if you're gonna die, if you're gonna you're die, gonna die. Yeah, you can do that in the audience as well.
0: Yeah, and I, I know it's Harris. I assume it's also Adrian. I can't remember because he's he's a good singer in his own yeah. right. I mean he he was a he was a singer in his former band and he does get to sing if they do Wasted Years, Bruce always gives Adrian a couple stanzas <laughs> yeah. to sing on it. I, I feel like it was Murray Got a nice, even though Adrian wrote it, I feel like Murray may have gotten a nice solo in here, even though Adrian kind of threw out doing a lot of the, the heavy lifting. I don't know. I, it got repetitive. I didn't know if the second solo later was necessary for the song. Okay. This, this, this song yeah. could have been a little shorter, if you ask me. I think Bruce was funny on 12 Wasted Years when they're doing it live, and I don't know if that was Hammersmith or where exactly they were. It's like, if you're going to die, he's kind of doing his He's It's like, like he's kind of making fun of it a little bit when the other guys are doing it. So I don't know if Steve wrote those and he, he's making fun of it a little bit. But it, it was funny, at least on the 12 Wasted Years version. Yeah. Okay, but that wraps side number one. No ballads. You know, Revelations has some slow parts, but I wouldn't call it necessarily a slow song. And so, we're yeah, that, that wraps side one. And then we get to The Trooper. The second single off the record, and I think it's the highest charting single in the U.S. for the band ever, if I'm not mistaken. Went at number twenty-eight.
2: That that would make sense to me. I mean, this again, if you don't know any. Iron Maiden songs, you've probably heard this one because they, it is still in, in fairly heavy rotation on the rock radio stations and yeah, I mean, like you said, if you, I don't know anything about Iron Maiden, but I, I have no clue, I have no any listen to this and you're going to encapsulate pretty much everything about the band.
0: You'll take my life, but I'll take yours too! you fire. find my-
1: Yeah,
0: and based on the Charge of the Light Brigade by Mm -hmm. Alfred Lord Tennyson, again, this is one that I had actually read in school, I think in like the eighth grade. When I wasn't a great student and I wasn't probably a great person because you're 13 and you've got all that (laughs) teenage stuff going on. But then I just thought it was very masculine. It's not about like flowers or falling in love like so much poetry might be, right? Right. Yeah, this is like tough, you know, and I'm like, okay, I I can get into this. And it's like, yeah, you, you know, you're going into sudden death or certain death. And you charge anyways, like, here we go, boys, all together now. Look, I've always liked this song. I don't know anyone who doesn't like this song. I understand maybe you don't want them to play it because they played it so much you'd rather hear something else, especially if you only got 15 songs in a set. But when they play this, it's not like people sit down or they go get a beer or they go to the bathroom. Like, people are hands in the air ready to go on this one.
2: Yes, and I believe in part of the live shows, uh, Bruce will go into part of this, part of the poem, Mm cannons to the right, cannons to the left, volley, yeah, here it is, cannons to the right of them, cannons to the left, volleyed on thunder, and then he goes into the trooper, and then boom, you know, you go go into that part, yeah, I mean, it's a, and this is kind of like if you're gonna die, you know, you're you're in the middle of this horrendous war, but you, you, you know, you keep going, you know this is, forward, half league, half league,
0: half league onward, man, Just, just go, yeah, yeah, and, you know, look, it's, uh, the, the boys, Adrian and Dave, with their harmonized guitar at the beginning, that's the two of them doubling each other. I think at their very best, their most iconic. And they actually look cool doing it. Dave is an amazing guitar player, but he doesn't look real cool. <laughs> And a- Adrian is is kind of the same way. He's kind of got the power bullet, and he's he had some odd choices. And, yeah, I mean, this is a performance video. A lot of spandex in this video for all the boys. <laughs> really, more spandex than, than maybe we need. But the two of them harmonizing on the guitars together is is great. And then when they actually trade licks and they take turns soloing, They're both super hot. Usually one might outshine the other or something like that. But not only are they both awesome, it goes together. Again, this may be the most Iron Maiden song of all time.
2: Now, so Smith came out with that record, what was it, last year, two years ago with Richie Kotzen? Yeah. So, the, the, and where I'm going with this is they had pictures of the two of them. And he's standing there, you know, he's got the guitar on the floor. He's kind of leaning on it. He's got a jacket, a hat, a scarf. He's very stylized. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both are, but I'm just thinking to myself, where was this person in 1983? Oh my god! Yeah, these guys look like, hey, there's a pile of clothes on the floor. Let's just grab something and get on the stage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, what are we doing here?
0: Oh, it's so funny, but it's so true. Like, they just their style was just. The, the, not... I don't think
2: there was. A, I think I think the spandex was. I've got to be on stage for like two and a half hours running around. Right. Give me something that's fairly comfortable. I know no one really cared how they look back then. I think that video was kind of a new thing, so it was just mm-hmm. whatever was lying around. But I just, that thought just struck me. And especially the the first one I ever got was uh, was somewhere in time. The inside gatefold on that, the pictures, they it literally look like, hey, what are you guys doing? We're just kind of hanging around the house. You want to take some pictures for the record? Sure, no sure. problem. I'm like, wow, okay.
0: Well, Eddie's the the face of the band, right? And, and Correct. Derek Riggs artwork, and of course, we already talked about how the artwork for the Trooper is amazing. And Bruce would come out in his red coat. Waving mm-hmm. the Union flag during this one, you know, and, and getting people excited and stuff like that, so super iconic. It went to twelve in the UK uh, and it was backed with the uh, with the Jethro Tull song Cross-eyed Mary mm-hmm. live on it. So that was the B side. But this actually got into the charts in the U.S., which is incredibly rare for Iron Maiden. It helped propel sales of the album over a million. It went platinum in the U.S. way before it went platinum in the U.K., like a decade before, you know. So love the song. Never get sick of hearing it. Never get sick of, of seeing it live. Yeah, this is this is su- super-duper Iron Maid. Something else to think about. I recently said, because Steve did an interview not that long ago, talking about how they're going to continue. And he's in his, you know, like late 60s now. So it's like, you know, how... How much longer can you do it? And he's like, No, I'm going out to tour. Uh, we lost time because of COVID, mm-hmm. and I don't know how much time we got left. So, as long as I can do it, the priority is touring. And he's also going to go out and tour with British Lion, like on the side, because he just wants to do it and play those smaller venues that Maiden could never do anymore. But it was interesting to me because they, they, like, leader of the band, founder, head lyricist, songwriter, and frontman. And I'm like, well, now wait a minute. Bruce Dickinson's the front man, mm-hmm. but then it. But we always think of the front man is the singer because they're the one out front all the time, right? And Bruce is out front, but he's also up on the risers around. Nico, he's also running around. Whereas Steve Harris is out front. He's got his foot on the monitor and he's out there playing and screaming along the songs yeah. to the fans in the front rows. So I'm like, you know what? It is actually kind of accurate to call Steve the front man of Iron Maiden. Mm. Uh, I would I wouldn't do that for anyone other than the singer I don't think in any other band but I I think that's fairly accurate.
2: Yeah and especially since he really is the the backbone of the whole organization. Oh, Good you're yes. right. He doesn't he doesn't go I mean I think he moves around a little bit but he doesn't. He doesn't go up on the risers. He's not out jumping up and down in front of the the crowd. You know, the, when they've got the wings on the sides, mm-hmm. he's pretty much. You're right, in front the entire time.
0: Yeah. So so it it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, I I did have a, a buddy at business school named Steve Harris. Like that was his name, Steve Harris. And I'm like, you know, there's the Iron Maiden. yeah, no, I know, dude. I was in a class my freshman year at Florida, and we had to go through like roll call or whatever. It's <laughs> professor said Steve Harris. And I go, yeah. And there's these two like, metal heads right in front of me who are like, dude. whoa, dude, 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 your name's Steve Harris. I'm like, yeah, he's, he's the man, Steve Harris.
1: Hey, guys, this is Chris from my rock and roll heaven, and you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast.
0: All right, next song, Still Life. Mm-hmm. Now, this is one that I actually really like. It's not one that comes up on like greatest hits albums or live albums or anything like that. But yeah. in the heady days of Napster, when I was trying to get songs or, or albums put together that I didn't have that I wanted to listen to for a long time, I remember I pulled this one to make like a, a an Iron Maiden best of not the huge songs, but like best of like the album tracks that I didn't know as well. Mm-hmm. And I always, I always like this one. And of course, it's, it, it's got, it's, <laughs> it, it's a Murray. Uh, it's, it's Davey usually gets one co-write on the albums, and he wrote this one with Steve. This has got a little interesting thing at the beginning for those Christians we were talking about earlier in the U.S. who, <laughs> who thought they were satanic because the of number of the beast. The, the, uh, yeah, the backwards whatever that
2: is. It's yeah. a backwards message, but it's really just Nico pretending to be somebody else. Pretending to be edio mean, yeah. I think. And just I think I guess he was really, really intoxicated when he laid this down. But yeah, it's just a it's basically just a middle finger to those people. There's really nothing. We're just fooling around. There's nothing weird, nothing sinister on this. We're just having a good time.
0: Yeah. We're we're mocking you. Right. By, he's doing his edia mean impression and he gives out a big belch, you know, <laughs> And it is turned to turned down, so you you have to you have to really kind of be looking for it because you have It does it definitely sounds like there's something backwards, but they did it on purpose to take the piss out of those right. people who who've never left their backyard, let alone been anywhere in the world. <laughs> so yeah, and so it's kind of funny that way. But you know, the base to start. Is awesome. Harris just shines on this. It's not one of the songs that's like overplayed in their catalog. And and I don't know, I I, I just dig it, you're Actually, say it will give me peace of mind. In right. There.
1: But it's in your eyes instead. hours I out just gazing into that
2: Right. And well, and that's the thing too. This is the first record that the title is not a track on the record, and that's this is the only reference to peace of mind. And I think he kind of does it with a wink, you know, when they do it on stage. Exactly. Um, it's kind of a sinister song and based on a short story that's hmm, something about there's there's somebody that becomes obsessed with people in the lake and he ends up drowning himself or something. Like it's very I know.
0: sounding. All my life's blood is slowly draining away. And I feel like I'm weaker every day. I know that's Iron Maiden, right? This is the kind of stuff that they write about. Uh, And and so I don't know. Look, for me, I always liked it. It's a great album track. I'm glad Davey got uh, a write on there. He usually gets one co-write and this is it on this one.
2: And you can kind of tell that at the beginning where it's a, it's more of the, like the guitar is front and center. Like uh, Harris is kind of following along with him. So it is a nice change of pace as far as how they start these things.
0: Yes, good one. Good good cut in there. And it's it's look it's it's kind of a mid one. The whole album is 45 minutes and then they started to do longer. Like sometimes it was like you say if you only give 38 39 minutes that's starting to seem like a short album at this time right. in in records It's 45, 46 minutes. And then they would go on to do like longer 50 minute albums. Whereas, you know, you do something like Diver Down, it's like 32 minutes and (laughs) half of them are covers or something like that. And, And so some of these songs are longer. This one, four and a half minutes, that's kind of a standard song length versus say Revelations which is seven minutes where Eagles Dare was over six. Die with your boots on was five and a half. It probably should have been four and a half. <laughs> if you're gonna die, you know, we, like, we know okay, we understand. Yeah, you know, we get if you're gonna die, we we got it. But. so I don't know. to so this stands out to me as a as an album track that the casual fan probably doesn't know that well. Again, I think I heard part of it on Twelve Wasted Years. I'm like, well that's pretty darn good. And you know, I gotta mm-hmm. I gotta hear that and it's totality
2: and it's interesting too i would i mean i don't know who who thought of this either murray or harris but you know again the 1964 short story by ramsey campbell like obviously you read that at some point in time and thought i'm struck with the the concept or the image of this and it made its way into a song that's way more heavy duty than you're going to get in most heavy metal bands
0: true it's certainly american heavy yeah. metal bands. maybe in europe uh, but not not in the U.S. of A. All right. Now, the seventh song on the record, the third track on the second side, Quest for Fire, this is a Harris Wright. <laughs> it's, it's based on a 1981 movie. Did you ever see Quest for Fire?
2: I think I saw part of it. It's it's very, I mean, it's about cavemen. so. Right. There wasn't really, I don't think there was any dialogue in it.
0: Right. I mean, that's kind of a problem.
2: Grunting. yeah. <laughs>
0: you want me to watch a whole movie with nobody talking? Eh, I'm going to pass. But it had a young Radon Chong in it, and I'm sure she was scantily clad as cave people were. So mm-hmm. that might have made it worth watching.
2: Yeah, or at um, least fast-forwarding through. Yeah, right. I mean,
0: Ron Ron Perlman was in it. Well, yeah, that makes sense. He's a great big weirdo anyway, right? <laughs> I mean, he, he, didn't he play the Beast in Beauty and the Beast with Linda Hamilton or something I like that? I believe he did, know? yes. Yeah, so I mean, that that makes sense for him. Everett McGill, who always played kind of a soldier, tough guy. Yeah. I'm thinking Heartbreak Ridge and, and Under Siege 2, Electric Boogaloo. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I obviously no, I never saw it, and but um, I don't love this one. The bass is sick, but the lyrics are just not amazing to me. Yeah, on it, this one. It.
2: This is one where he's singing along to the to the beat and yeah, won't you join me on my quest of fire? Now at the beginning part, I got it. I've got to point something out here. At a time when dinosaurs ruled the earth, yeah. Okay, dinosaurs and anything resembling a man were millions and millions of years apart. Not, not anything either. close. It didn't it wasn't like the, the Flintstones, I promise.
0: Well now you're offending the Christians, dude, because the world's only six thousand years old. So now mm-hmm. we're just losing all of our listeners.
2: Well honestly that's super <laughs> I'm not super <laughs> upset with that. <laughs> Finally, no, but you're right. With you. dinosaurs rule <laughs> yeah. I'm like
0: this is these lyrics are lame. This <laughs> is not that good, dude. And the <laughs> solos to me were pretty tame. Yeah. now now it was kind of more of a measured pace so maybe they said okay we're not gonna just you know do face melting crazy flying fingers on this one we're gonna kind of pace ourselves a little bit it's not like they're bad they're just tame and it's like look you, you put that with the weak lyrics and I'm like this one is is kind of a I don't know if throwaways the, the the right one but if you to me if you only had eight out al- eight songs of the album, this one wouldn't have made
2: it. Right. And I wonder, too, if it was anybody else but Harris, would it have made it on the record? No, no, no. Right. We're doing this. Okay. I guess we're doing this one. Right.
0: Harry says we're doing it. Well, I guess Correct. we're doing it. You know? Correct. Nico doesn't have a vote. He's still no. too new. Plus, he doesn't uh, care anyway. Whatever. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, n- not my favorite. Kind of one of the weaker songs. But you go to Sun and Steel, which is a Dickinson Smith song, and, and I actually like this better. It's a hell of a runner. Mm-hmm. The the one that the the
2: part that I kind of have a problem with is the is the chorus on this. Like it's it's very upbeat. I'm like, this is about a samurai who he's doing all kinds of I don't know samurai things. You know, mm-hmm. you're fighting, you're killing people, and then the the chorus. It just it almost is like it doesn't it doesn't fit with the rest of the song or even with the rest of the album. It's not a bad song. It just kind of feels weirdly out of place.
0: We'll I'm right Yeah. And I know it's about uh, a samurai or whatever. To me, it conjured up visions of like Conan. Right. You know, like okay. he, was, he was a young man uh, and they turned him into this warrior. You know, mm. he killed his first man at 13. And then you learn to fight sunlight falling on your steel death and life is your ideal life is like a wheel. It it is upbeat. There's, there's major chords instead of minor chords, right? So it it, it kind of feels like, yeah, it, it it is kind of cool to me. There's there's not a ton to the lyrics. I mean, there's really, again, there's two verses and a lot of choruses, but I I like it not much to the lyrics, but, but I, I dig it. I mean, I like it after quest for fire. I think it's a step back in the right direction.
2: Okay. And I will agree with you on that. And I will also say that if you are lucky enough to get your hands on a bottle of the old sun and steel, it's very refreshing.
0: Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. Well, our buddy, Chris at, at my rock and roll heaven or at rock these tweets, he was trying to put together, I saw him on Twitter. He's trying to put together like a collection of the, of all the bottle caps of, of the, of the different maiden brews. And I was collecting them too. Cause I, I bought a, 12-pack before I went to see Bruce do his speaking thing live. Uh-huh. And I had a few. And then you and I, I think, had one maybe when you came to visit. And uh, it was it was the Sun and
2: Steel. It was I Sun was, and Steel. I was very excited. And I know that Bruce, when I saw Bruce here in the United States, he was talking about going to visit a brewery in Ohio to try and get it made here because it's just way too expensive to import. Oh, so, right. Fingers crossed they'll get that done, and we can get it here in the U.S.
0: Well, I was also collecting them, and I gave them to my daughter. I'm like, hold on to these, because these are really cool. Oh, boy. And so either they got thrown away, or (laughs) they're in a pouch in a box on the Atlantic, and we may never see them anyway. And now I'm not really drinking anymore, so I I may never get any more of those anyway, but whatever. I I like Sun and Steel, Bruce and Adrian. Yeah. It's upbeat. It's it's not a real long song, uh, yeah, and, and it's it, it's better than the previous one.
2: <laughs> and and it's a nice vocal out by Dickinson at the end. It's kind of a it's a different way to end the song, and that's uh that's a nice change of pace also.
0: So then you come to the very end here to mm-hmm. tame a land, mm-hmm. a Harris Wright. Correct. This was very obviously, if you read through the lyrics, this is very much influenced by Dune, the movie or the book Dune by mm-hmm. Frank Herbert. So why didn't they call it Dune? Okay. So. (laughs) Now, of course, I remember when Dune, the movie, came out with Colin Mm -hmm. McLaughlin and and Sean. Sting. Sting was in it. So that was a big selling point. Sean Young was in it. Mm -hmm. It's a Ferreira uh, Jose Ferreira Was in it It was kind of weird You know Like this is one of the best selling Science fiction books of all time After you know Like Star Wars And Blade Runner And then Flash Gordon came out You know Like there's kind of a sci-fi You know revolution And now there's better Special effects You know Special effects are actually kind of cool It's like okay You can do justice To something like a real Science fiction movie now And I remember my dad Took me to see it in the theater It's like three hours long Mm-hmm. And it's kind of slow and plotting. I I didn't really get it as a kid. And what did it come out in? In eighty four. Yeah. Yeah. So so the year after this, but so they wanted to call it Dune. Mm-hmm. They reached <laughs> they reached out to Frank Herbert's people to say, hey, you know, we've got this we've got this song and it's it's pretty epic, and we want to call it Dune. You know, would you give us your blessing? And it was like his agents say. Frank Herbert doesn't like rock bands, particularly mm-hmm. heavy rock bands, mm-hmm. and especially bands like Iron Maiden. <laughs> so, okay, well, thanks, Frank. You nerd, you know. Yeah, I think
2: it was it was he and it, something like if you call this thing Dune, I will sue you for every penny you ever had. Yeah. But I think, but I think somewhere. On the original pressing or something, it might be called Dune. And if you can get your hands on that, that would be a pretty cool collector thing. Because, yeah, it's, it's, it's all about that book, or I guess it's a series of books. I never really watched it. I tried to watch it when it was on HBO, like probably in 1985 or something, mm-hmm. thinking – I don't even know what's going on here. It's very long. It's very bizarre. It's weird. Yeah, probably David Lynch was not the person to direct
0: this thing. Nope. (laughs) No, I mean, look, David Lynch is great avant-garde, all that kind of stuff. Correct. You know... uh... Then it's good to do the stuff he did, like with Nick Cage and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and Willem Dafoe. Like, don't don't let him do something like this. <laughs> uh, so, but you know, you're right. If you can find that initial pressing, and my guess is they destroyed them or they stuck them in the Iron Maiden vaults because if mm-hmm. Herbert's people were serious about suing, if you put that name on there, that they can't let those out, right? You know, so so they changed it to to Tame Land, and it's it's got a slow plod with the guitar over the top at the start. But it does kind of become pretty epic, you know, Mm -hmm. more than seven minutes long. And in the middle, it's frantic with the bass and the guitar solo in the middle. Especially Steve's bass is crazy. Epic, epic Steve, to be honest with you. But then it comes back like a reprise to the beginning. You know, it's kind of like that slow plotting thing again.
2: Right. And it's what you come to expect on a Maiden record. You know you're going to have the epic Steve Harris you know, seven minute plus song, and a lot of time. It seems like they try and keep those uh, at the end, kind of as a treat to make it all the way through the end, to, uh, all the way through the record.
0: I think you're right. <laughs> what I don't love about it is at the start when Bruce the rhythm of the verses with Bruce which is it's, it's along with the bass I guess it's along I don't like that syncopation don't like the delivery of okay. the song now once you get into the middle part I like it but I, I just yeah I just I don't love that I, I'm, I'm sure it was decided you're going to sing along with the melody with the bass and the bass might be cool and all but I, I just don't I don't dig it Okay. that piece of it the rest of it is great but to me yeah that that bit of it i don't love
2: yeah and i don't know why they would have decided to do it like that cuz you're right i don't like when it's when it just matches exactly
0: I mean, it's like Ozzy singing in black Sacks. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I don't know.
2: I don't know. There's probably a name for that, but I don't know what it is. But yeah, he does that in in what was the other song on here? Yeah, it's that quest for fire. Is that it? Maybe. Yes. Yeah. 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 Join yeah. my
0: quest yeah. for fire. You don't need
2: to do that. Like like Ozzy had to do that because he was not a very great, not a good singer at that point in his career. You right. don't have to do this, Bruce. You're better than that
0: that's what i say otherwise though i think it's a great piece of maiden obviously they're talking about the spice and you know all that kind of stuff did you see the new the newer version with Timothée chalamet no i didn't i think i saw it on a plane okay and it's better i mean it's Mm -hmm. better than the david lynch version i would say and i assume they're probably going to make another one or a couple more because that's just what they do these days it's better is it great
2: I think part of the problem was, I mean, I, this is a big, this is, uh, there's many, many novels to this deal. And so how do you compress that into a movie? But could you imagine like, you're such a fan of this deal? I mean, you read the books. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this song about this epic book that meant a lot to me. And the guy's like, if you call it my, if you put my
0: name on it, I will sue you. I hate you that much. Right. Oh, come on. Well, right. And apparently the success was more than he could bear because, I mean, I think he died in 1986, not that mm-hmm. long after the movie came out. But I also think his wife had, like, had cancer for a long time. Oh, jeez. And then she died kind of around the time of the movie. So he was probably not in great headspace anyway. Mm-hmm. But, you yeah, know, there was like five or six books, and then I think his kids took his notes and then... Posthumously, yeah, they kinda had additional stories, kinda like Amazon's doing now, like extending the Lord of the Rings out with Mm -hmm. the permission of the family of of J.R. Tolkien. But you know, I, I don't really have a problem with that because there's demand for it, people want it. The family's giving the okay. So, you know, extend it out, put more to the story. I just, you know, I don't think it's that great. It must be a better, you know, anytime anyone says, oh, you have to read the book, the book is so much better than the movie. like, I know the book is always better than the movie. Okay. Always. But because movies can be made so well right now, I'm not reading those Tolkien books (laughs) because the movies are awesome. The movies are epic. Peter Jackson did an amazing job with those. So I don't need to read the books. And the movie's just not inspiring me to go read the books. Another thing that's kind of weird about this one is it fades out. Yeah. Usually Iron Maiden songs stop. Yeah. But this one fades out at the end. And for the last song of the album to fade out, that's an interesting choice.
2: But it actually, it it works. It sounds okay, but you're right. It's not what they usually do. But I mean, it doesn't have to follow a formula. If it works, it works.
0: Yeah, that's right. So there's your 45 plus minutes and nine songs. Like I said, they went on the road in a big way after that. They toured the heck out of this over 130 dates around the world for over like eight months, just working their asses off there. And then it it set them up like, okay, now we've got the band, even though we had a a switch out on every album before this. And obviously there were some changes to the band before they became a recording act. Now they have this stable thing in place that would be around for basically about eight years Mm -hmm. and they would do... Their most epic tours, the World Slavery Tour, the Lost Somewhere in Time Tour, the The Seventh Son and, and Maiden England tour, the whole live after death live production, unbelievable. You know, this is this is what set them up for success for the next three plus decades, four <laughs> decades, really. Yeah. Now it may not have just been this album, but this was the unit that made right. it happen.
2: Right. And, and it's interesting that, I mean, I, I know they had problems with Paul Diano and they had problems with Clive um, as far as like reliability and perhaps substance abuse. But after that, it was rock solid. I think Adrian only left because he just didn't really like the, the direction the band was going. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't have anything to do with drugs. It didn't have anything to do with fighting that I know of. So, yeah, a real stable crew to um, make their way through the 80s and, you know, like you said, set them up until today.
0: Yeah, no, and maybe they were getting a little proggy or using too much synth for Adrian. Mm-hmm. Plus, you know, he he, no, he wrote Wasted Years on his own. When they got to Somewhere in Time, Bruce was so burnt out after Power Slave that, that Bruce didn't contribute any songs to Somewhere in Time right. b- because he was just exhausted. He didn't have anything in him. So Adrian did write, and he wrote with Steve again, but he wrote some stuff on his own, and he's like, you know what, I can write more than just one or two or three songs on an album. I can do more and yeah this proggy stuff plus they're the relentless touring i know it's great and you make money and it's it's great to play live but it's also gotta be exhausting so but i mean honestly when he left with on no prayer for the drawing and they for the dying and they they brought yannick in that was also the departure of Derek riggs for a while mm-hmm. he didn't do the artwork on that but from 83 through 89 it was always these five guys in the band, it was always Derek Riggs, it was always Martin Birch behind the controls, and obviously Rod Smallwood was calling mm-hmm. all the shots in the management. So having all that in place, not to mention they had the same light guys, you know, they had the same stage production guys, yeah. they had the same Andy Taylor at the record company was the same guy. So like this amazing team and stability that you just don't see, especially in like a heavy metal band, but between the image, between the sound, between management it was all very steady hands Obviously, they all got along together, and that was obvious in that twelve wasted years. Like God, you use the same people for lights. You have the same <laughs> road crew and assistants. You have all these people for decades. Yeah, you know, well, I mean, small Smallwood's a genius. Yeah,
2: that's that's what happens when you treat people well. They want to stick around, and so and then that just makes it easier to go all over the world with the same people. You don't have to worry about you know you know everybody is going to do their job correctly. You don't have to worry about uh, loose. Uh, you know, weak links or anything in the chain and to have, yeah, the same the same uh, truck driver for 25 mm-hmm. years or whatever. It's just that's unheard of.
0: Yeah. You know, and they they keep them on the payroll. So mm-hmm. even if there's covid, OK, we're not firing everybody. You know, we need all these people from when covid's over. So we're going to continue to pay them. You know, right. They reunited with Paul Diano recently uh, in Eastern Europe and Steve hadn't seen him in 30 years. He's, he's in Eastern Europe to get surgeries because he can't afford to do it in England because he needs all this health. Oh, yeah. on his legs. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, no, we're going to pick that up. You know, we're going to take care of all your medical bills. We're, we're just, you know, you're still part of the family and we're obviously still doing great. And and again, that just shows a lot of class, mm-hmm. and shows that Rod Spallwood's management. He's like, look, when we give you money, you're not going to owe tax. We're not going to give you a million dollars, but hey, at the end of the year, you're going to owe nine hundred thousand right. tax, right? Yeah. When we give it to you, all the tax can be paid. You want a house? Great, we're going to get it paid for, so you don't, uh, you know, all this other stuff, so people don't come kick your mom out when the next record doesn't <laughs> sell as well or whatever, you know. Just brilliant management, brilliant talent in the band, and yeah, like I said. This sets them up for the success and for the stuff that we really love when it comes to Power Slave, capturing them live on Live After Death, and Somewhere in Time, which I can't wait to see some of those songs again this summer, yes. Jackson.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. But I think going back and doing this record, I, I don't think I appreciated this one enough as a standalone deal. I mean, I understand, you know, the, the parts that fit into the bigger catalog. But like you said, I mean, Still Life, that's a great song that they don't, that kind of gets lost. Yeah. Um, Sun and Steel, right. and uh, you know, Well, Die with Your Boots On is always kind of around, but yeah, just a just a real solid record on its own.
0: Yeah, I agree. And after Number of the Beast, you kind of kind of continue down that path, but no, you've got this great new tool with Nico. Let's put him to the task, you know. Mm-hmm. And and you know, it's before they got into synths. I know that turned some people off the synths, but it, it just showed that we're getting everybody up to a certain level now, right? Mm-hmm. Diana was good punk early, you know, metal singer. But once we got Bruce, it's an upgrade, you know. Yep. Dennis Stratton was good enough for the first album, but we needed someone like Adrian to take it to the next level to be able to trade with Davey. And then, yeah, getting Nico in, fantastic rock drummer. I think he lives in South Florida now. Uh, I
2: believe so, yes. He's got a restaurant down there. Uh, I know that he will, uh, on occasion, show up and do kind of impromptu musical selections. So that would be awesome to uh, to witness that at some point in time.
0: Yeah, and in addition to being in trust, which we mentioned earlier, I think he played with Pat Travers Mm -hmm. before he came in. He was also, I think, a boxer for a while as a young man. And you could tell that by his schnozzle. (laughs) Like, yeah, he's he's had that caved in once or twice. (laughs) And he caught it pulled like that. Having Bruce Dickinson (laughs) do Nico McBrain during his speaking engagement was hilarious. And and just hilarious. He does the best Nico McBrain impression I've ever seen. (laughs) you really thought you were there is it July 11th in Amsterdam and July 13th in Brussels and they will have just played London, Uh, I think the O2 okay just before we see them so they'll be coming off what should be a huge triumphant hometown London show or a couple shows there before we see them so they they should be in a good mood
2: yeah I can't wait I can't wait somewhere in time is my favorite record to the fact that I'm going to get to possibly see the the stage show and just see them for the first time twice in a row yeah I can't wait I cannot wait
0: yeah, no, yeah. London on in the O2, the 7th and 8th of July. Lord of the Lost opens the first night. The Raven Age opens the next night. And then we get the Raven Age, who I know nothing about. Okay. Both nights there at the Ziggo Dome and the Sport Palace. Okay, what you are going to freak out. You are going to love it, man. It is going to be so much fun. Awesome. <laughs> That is our wrap on Iron Maiden's Peace of Mind, which is turning 40 this May, if you can believe that out there, heavy metal fans. And no, it's not one that we were big into as little kids when we were 9, 10 years old. That artwork never would have made it into our house, and we just didn't see it on MTV, and they didn't play it on pop radio, let alone rock radio at the time. It's something we had to come to on our own, and really we got into it in college and worked our way back from there to understand really the majesty and the power of Iron Maiden, all the talent in their band from the writing to the playing and just the incredible group of people that they are, even all the way up to the management. It's why they're still going strong today. It's why they're going to have one of the biggest tours this summer. And even though we're going to see them in Europe, I really hope they do come to America and do some nice touring over here, give everybody over here a chance to see them again. A little bit more on Dune there. It may not be my favorite, I just think that science fiction, when done right, is amazing on the movie screen, and it really raises the bar for the medium for what movies can be. But poorly done science fiction in a movie? It's just, it's unwatchable. I mean, even a bad comedy will have a couple of jokes that are worth remembering or repeating. But bad science fiction is just, ugh, you know, it's unwatchable, it's terrible, it's a waste of time. And the books may have been amazing, but that first movie was not. Uh, The second movie, I guess, was better, but I don't know if it's still my thing. But hey, to all you Super Comic Con Dune fans out there, I hope you loved it, and I hope they make more so you can go see them. As far as the pantheon of Iron Maiden albums go that we've reviewed, well, it's certainly better than Fear the Dark. Do I like it better than Number of the Beast? Maybe, maybe not. Live After Death is just too powerful of memory for me, and I just love Somewhere in Time. Jackson does, too. It's his favorite. And because we came in on Seventh Son, because our buddy Rob let us borrow it when we were in college, that holds a special place. Maybe it's better than that. I don't know. But it's a great Iron Maiden album. It's the one that set them up for success in that they finally had the band finalized, the the classic lineup, and they're all still together today, along with Yannick Gers, and they're going to be touring this summer, and we can't wait. So we want to know, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? You've got to let us know. You email us, uglyamericanwerewolf at gmail.com. You let us know the bands, the albums, the concerts the movies that you want us to review and talk about here on the show, you can tweet us at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. We're on Instagram. I think we're on Facebook. Reach out to us, letting us know how you're doing. And if you're thinking about it, guys, hey, please go leave a positive review for us. Wherever you get your podcast. we want you to download and subscribe. It can be Apple or iTunes or Spotify or Podbean or Good Pods. Anywhere is great, but if you're thinking about it, just leave a positive review for us because it just helps us find more rock and roll fans out there like you. Now we're cooking up a couple of things. We're going to have some guests on before too long, we hope, and we're excited about that. I'm not exactly sure which show is coming next week, so you are going to have to download and subscribe to find that out. But to all of you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe.